Hello and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver and the first episode of 2020. Today's guest is Sean Feeney, the president of Bookman's, which is my sponsor. Sean is a dedicated and knowledgeable basketball fan and has a background in film criticism, which makes him a near perfect fit for discussion about the melding of art and sports. As a quick side story, when I first decided that I wanted to approach Bookman's about being my sponsor, I literally just went to the store closest to my house. There's three locations in Tucson and I just went to the one that I could walk to. And I was looking for a local sponsor. I really wanted to work with a sponsor that I believed in what they were doing and I didn't want to just have to promote any old thing. I wanted to promote something that I I thought was doing some good and and book bookman's as a secondhand store for records books really anything um entertainment wise felt like a good a good place to start for for collaborating with a local business that i believed in and so i just walked in and i asked the guy that was working at the customer service counter if there's anyone there who i could talk to about a podcast sponsorship and he gave me a business card for um, a media contact, a Bookman's media contact. And I left the store thinking, who knows what's going to happen here? Um, This is such a long shot, just, you know, sort of randomly approaching a business about a sponsorship. And I ended up still sending out the email and and saying, you know, that I was interested in, in working with Bookman's. And about two weeks later, I heard back that Yes, Bookman's was interested in sponsoring my podcast, and the president of the company wanted to be a guest on the show. And that was just so exciting to me that not only had I found this company that I believed in, uh, but that they also seemed to be interested in what I was doing and that, you know, I could I could offer this chance to to have a conversation with with Sean, who's the president of the company and, and a huge basketball fan. So. That was so exciting to me uh, as a basketball fan, and it's just been it's been fun to um, yeah work with them so far. It's just been great. So I just want to preface our this recording with with that story, just so you know, if you ever get the idea to do something kind of random that feels right, just go for it because you never know when your podcast is going to get sponsored. So just so everyone knows, that's my story. Um, so this week, Sean and I had the chance to record uh, this past week, and we got to just unpack the individual aesthetic choices of players and also what visual elements make the game so compelling for both of us. So we really took a deep dive in on the on two games from last week, the Rockets playing the Hawks and the Mavericks playing the Nuggets, and just looked at sort of the visual components of those games, the styles of the player and how those uh, choices affected us as viewers, the choices the players were making. Um, So thanks so much to Sean for coming on the pod. Really appreciate all the support with the show. And before starting today's show, I want to acknowledge the passing of David Stern, who was Adam Silver's predecessor as the NBA commissioner. Stern's career spanned three decades from 1984 to 2014. And basketball truly became a global game because of his work and his vision for the game. He also made several decisions in racially and politically charged situations that I did not and do not agree with. But I very much appreciate his dedication and care for basketball and all he did to grow the game. 
If any of you are looking for some recent and important reads about David Stern and his career, I recommend The Towering Complicated Legacy of David Stern by Dave Zirin of The Nation magazine and My Dinner with David by Dan Clores of The Ringer. These pieces offer two perspectives on Mr. Stern, both of which are worth telling. I will leave a link to each piece in the show notes. Okay, that's it for now. Please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the show. Thank you so much for your support. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This is, conversation has been in the works for a while, and um, you know your idea of discussing uh, aesthetics, aesthetics of choice and how that relates to both the, the art that sort of speaks to us as well as the, the sports or the art that we find through sports, specifically basketball, um, is something that I think I've like touched on in earlier conversations without labeling it. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate you kind of bringing this to my attention so that we can unpack this uh, both through basketball and then hopefully bring in some other ideas Fantastic. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think that I want to start out with this question of bottom line, if you could say in a couple sentences what you get out of watching basketball. What is the what is the benefit for you? Well, I have to kind of point a little bit to my background in the arts generally. So um, I grew up in a sports family and uh, played sports, played football, played basketball, and grew up with parents. My dad was a was a, a high school football coach that were very interested in sports. Um, but there was also this aesthetic firmament in my family. Um, my sister and brother both pursued careers as actors, and I was very interested in both musical performance and, and film and other um, performing arts as a young person. So I had this kind of foot in both camps, if you will, between sports and the artistic world. Um, later pursued a career uh, shortly as a film critic, and and I guess I've always thought about sports as a viewer from the perspective of how a critic might approach any aesthetic form. And this was a very big difference between me and many of my peers growing up, especially who were interested in the arts, who thought of the arts as this kind of separate silo and sports as a bottom line results, win-loss kind of thing. And for me, of course, winning and losing is ultimately the outcome that people are seeking with sports. And as fans, we want to see our teams win. But I began to notice from my own viewing pleasure, there were certain aspects of sports that um, that drew my attention and made me really want to continue watching. And it's what drew me to basketball, I think, as being the sport I primarily watch. And then there, from that, it was a specific set of attributes that I think are associated with basketball when well-played. And we can sure, unpack yes. what well-played means. some marks happening, yeah. <laughs> what well-played basketball means. But I began to become really interested in both what I perceive to be beautiful, aesthetically pleasing basketball as a physical activity, as a kind of visual um, art form. And what was being described around the game as good basketball or beautiful basketball, um, and again, using air quotes Mm -hmm. for these terms, but as a viewer, it just became a kind of point of fascination. On And since I had this background as a critic, I began to think, how, how can I unpack this? How can I really start to put some definition on what beautiful basketball is or aesthetically pleasing basketball? And for my own interest as a fan, I began to notice I wasn't that interested in a particular team or teams. I would follow teams and players that emulated these aesthetic principles and how they played. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really a fan-driven obsession, but it was also came from this critical background I had in thinking about the visual arts. Right. And so on, um, 
you know, rather than I'm not sure how often you've listened to basketball versus watch it, but I mean, it can be exciting to hear it on the radio as well if the announcers are good and all of that. And I'm just wondering sort of what makes it so visually compelling when you're talking about the the certain characteristic that basketball so fit into this idea of um, something that you could critique like a film or something like that. Right. Why is it basketball versus some other sports? Like what, what is it? Well, what's funny about that is that I actually don't enjoy listening to basketball broadcasts very much. Okay. Um, as uh, Within the realm of American sort of major popular sports, I much prefer to listen to baseball, actually. Mm-hmm. Baseball, I would describe as kind of a narratively driven game, which is to say that um, it's long um, there's not a great deal of action if you look at it simply from a movement perspective, but there's all these little elements to the game that tend to dictate success or failure, winning or losing. And the narrator at a um, uh, on a radio broadcast is as capable of, of showing me that in a sense as me sitting, certainly as watching it on TV or sitting in the sure. arena. And so really what I'm interested in is the outcome. And what I noticed is that baseball was really interesting to me when I was cheering for my own team. I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. Um, Curveball. Yeah, I mean, no pun intended, sir. <laughs> um, long story there. Maybe yeah. some other time we can get into that. Um, so I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. And so when the White Sox are playing, I'm keenly aware of every aspect of what's going on, what the pitch count is, what the pitch selection is, where the defense is positioned, what the batter is trying to accomplish. But, but I really can't just watch two random teams play baseball because it's not inherently aesthetic to me. It's narrative. And if I'm not invested in the stakes of the narrative, then it, I lose interest. Mm-hmm. Um Football's kind of a tweener for me. Um, growing up playing it a lot, I understood the game very deeply, but but visually when you watch it on TV, you're seeing only a fraction of the game. And again, much of the action is really every, every individual player on a football team in a given play has a very narrow and circumscribed task to do. You're going to block this person. You're going to run this route. Right. You're going to drop back. And then the quarterback has a certain set of choices or reads, as they say, that they go through. And they make a decision based on those reads. But the only real choice point, the only real person executing a series of real-time choices in a, in a football game is the quarterback primarily. Defenders may make a choice of a defensive scheme before the snap, but once the snap happens, everybody's just kind of in a react mode. Right. Basketball, by contrast to these, is both, I think, more visually stimulating in itself because, I mean, simply put, there's more constant action, there's more movement, there's body movement, the ball moves. Um, but each of these movements, and there's a reason in basketball that basketball coaches refer to these things as actions, or pl- a play is referred to as an action, is that they're all interdependent on choice. So when a play is run, it's described to, to have a certain outcome. But right from the beginning, everybody knows that the likelihood is that outcome is almost certainly not going to happen. So there is a series of prescribed reactions depending on what the defense does to counteract the play. And then depending on what reaction you use, the the defense adjusts to that anticipated reaction and so on and so forth. It's much more improvisational. And at the same time, it's much more, I would say, spectacular than something like baseball or even football. I can watch literally high school kids play basketball or junior high kids because the orchestration of the game, the ballet of the game is pretty similar at any level. Now, certainly NBA players are more skilled. They're more capable. Faster. Faster, more dynamic, more athletic. Those those uh, aesthetic elements of 
velocity, motion, speed are all at, accentuated at that level. Um, but it's the game itself that demands that accentuation, I would argue. And that's, I think, why for me, basketball is the most aesthetically pleasing game. Maybe it's because I come from motion picture interest and just visual dynamism to me is more inherently interesting than stasis. Yes, I, I think that that... Um all makes sense. I, I think it's so helpful to think about because I, I find that baseball is quite compelling as well, but it is for different. It's for so many different reasons because uh, basketball is kind of this like back and forth. Very, you know, there's even when there's a lull, there's still a lot happening when you know teams go three minutes when no one scores. There's right. so much action still taking place, whereas there's a lot of standing around and and stillness in baseball, which has right. its own value, but is not maybe as. Uh, compelling in in many in a visual sense um until that one hit or that the the home run or that you know the the a no hitter or something like that or that catch right which um may or may not happen throughout the whole game right um so it's it's a little bit less uh reliably action-packed right in any sense exactly baseball is what i would describe as micro narrated so if you're reading a dickens novel there's not a lot of action per se there's not a lot of events that take place during the novel but there are these narrations of emotion feeling motivation so on and so forth that lead that maintain your interest between the events or Mm -hmm. the actions it's kind of how baseball works it's all these little things what pitch count is it which what um what particular pitch is the catcher going to call is that pitch going to be effective is the batter anticipating that pitch or looking for something else they step out yeah they're trying to regroup after each pitch there's this sense that that there's very high stakes but that the actual act and because the stakes are so high the actions are very carefully calibrated basketball I mean, maybe because there's so much more scoring in the game right. each individual possession is critical but the but they're also there's the sense of free form or improvisation that is available because the, the of the nature of the game that allows each possession to also, if it doesn't work out, you try something different the next time. Um, but it also allows for more improvisation and just dynamic action. It's not as controlled in that mm-hmm. sense. And I think that... Um, that's why I describe it as a game of more of a spectacle, per se, than narrative. Now, obviously, there are narrative stakes. I want my team to win. What is our current margin right now? At what point in the game? Who tweeted what last night? Who tweeted night? what last <laughs> night? Is my favorite player going to get traded? Right. There are these macro, macro narrations on top of it, yeah. of course. But the actual gameplay, and I guess getting back to your question, the reason why I'm so attracted to watching basketball get played and not just reading the tweets or seeing the highlights or um, engaging in the narrative aspect at that level is because there's something compelling to me when watching it visually and you know maybe this is a good segue into what constitutes visually attractive basketball versus less visually attractive basketball but that's why for me styles of play both by a team and a player are so important to how I appreciate the game yeah, and I think that um, more comparable to basketball would be hockey or soccer in as far as what the uh, how the players move around each other. And of course, I have issues with hockey because of all the uh, uniform baggage the mm. players are carrying around with them the whole time, which I feel like is very clunky in a way that basketball is very mm. exposed and right. uh, the players appear vulnerable in some sense, which is I uh, will uh, definitely get into vulnerability later because I think it's a big part of um what makes things visually appealing to me. Um, But this idea that there's so much more with each score in hockey or soccer, there's so much more um, 
it's so much. They need that so much more. The stakes than, are higher. The stakes are so much higher within with basketball, where it's like, oh, I, I miss. I'm just going to try. And in some cases, with the basketball that I think both of us find a little bit more stagnant, they just try the same thing again. Right. <laughs> um, right. So th- there, it it doesn't feel as much of a the yeah the stakes being so low in basketball. So I think that there is something to be said, even though I don't have nearly the same amount of interest in those sports. I um, when these when talking a little bit earlier about when teams go back and forth without scoring any points for a while and then you know one team gets on a run or the momentum shifts and all of a sudden that someone gets hot or whatever that is exciting to me in a mm-hmm. way that when it's just when everyone is constantly scoring um like I loved last night uh watching the Hawks um Rockets. Uh, Rockets game that mm. I was about to say Hawks Harden, which is another <laughs> issue that we have totally. But um, the uh, Hawks Rockets game that like, really, I mean, when I was so I watched it, I watched it later on like tape delay, and and really when I was checking the score throughout the game, I was like, whoa, this is over. You know, right. like at, it, halfway through the second quarter, I was like, ah, this is done. And then this idea that like it's not done that, mm. that, that these two same teams with the same players, something can change. That's right. And a certain group needs to miss some shots, and the other group needs to make some shots but it still feels like all of a sudden emotions are different that feelings are different just within the space of 48 minutes in the exact same physical location so many different shifts can happen and i i think that is that does not necessarily the case that is not necessarily the case when you score so few points right i think that it needs to be a high scoring game in order to have that okay and now this or even um you know sometimes i remember last year uh I forget who was saying this, but someone was saying that the Warriors play better when they're behind. So mm. when they go into the locker room at halftime and they're behind, they come back out. It's like they have more incentive. They have more of a place. Right. To, it's to why they would bl- have these explosive third quarters, game after game after game, when they seem, especially in the first and sometimes in the second quarter, to just be kind of kicking the ball around the gym, meandering, right. not really focused and paying attention. Yes. So I think that that is such an um, important aspect of it that... Uh, yeah, it's just it's not. I, I don't think that that exists within soccer and hockey because you can't give up a point. You can't play from behind in those sports because right. it's so unlikely that you're going to score. You can't risk it. Right. The Whereas, investment, yeah. the way we engage with it is, as a viewer is really quite different. So in a, in a hockey or, or soccer game, the excitement is that each potential goal is incredibly powerful, right? There's going to be so few goals scored. Right. If we have, if you see an odd man rush or an opportunity for a goal, goal and you're particularly invested in one team, you become super tense, right? Oh my God, we're going to get scored against. Or you see the opportunity for your own squad and you think, oh my goodness, here we go. We're going to get a goal yeah. and the, it, two goals and this thing is over, right? Um, and then it doesn't happen. You kind of take this breath and then the whole thing resets. In basketball, more than any other sport, you'll be watching your team if you're cheering for one team. They might be up 15, 18 points, but you know the momentum has already shifted. You can feel it in the flow of the game that they've either lost focus or um, they're not as crisp in execution. The movement, and and really when we talk about crispness of execution, what we're talking about is precision of body movement. The, yeah. the players are not in in sync. There's an orchestration and an improvisation to at the same time that goes on when a team is playing well that just seems to seems to be this ineffable quality that can fade. But when it ha- when you're watching it and you're seeing it happening, you know it's coming even when there's already your team might be up 15, 20 points. I can't tell you how many times with other people who are less fans of basketball than I were watching a game and, and they'll say, oh, this thing's over. I'm like, it's not over. Like, <laughs> I, I can, they're letting go of the rope. Watch, this is going to get back into a close game here very, very quickly. Yeah. Because, and again, it's, it's this fact that basketball is so dynamic all the time. There's so many 
many variables that work on a work into a, a given play and resulting in a given basket, and yet there are 50, 55 baskets a game. So the ability for things to go wrong is that much more accentuated, and the, and the ability for things to go right is that much more accentuated. Right, which just creates more drama the whole time, which is, exactly. I think, incredibly uh, exciting. So let's unpack a little bit then this idea of aesthetics of choice okay. and sort of since you were the one that that proposed this to me i i would like you to unpack sort of how you how you approach basketball through the aesthetics of choice lens mm-hmm. and maybe how it relates to other aspects of your life artistically okay. so music film mm-hmm. um art whatever it is so this idea of um there's a certain type of basketball that you look for or a certain type of movement within the game that mm-hmm. that that is is pleasing to you as just as you are, whatever's built into your genetic DNA, mm. however you've been raised, whatever sort of uh, information has been put into your head, that's what you find to be compelling. Right. So um, it's always difficult to separate the self from the cultural Im- inputs around you. So one of the things growing up being a basketball fan and being coached and growing up in a coaching family is the idea of something being well executed versus poorly executed. And so... Um, when I think of the when I think of what the attributes are that um, others would talk about with basketball when they would say that's that was well played or that was well executed, it had to do with decision making. So you would set up an action, a, a play is run, um, and sometimes the first outcome of the play happens and that's fine. But when people get excited, professional commentators on the game would get excited. It would be when the first action is blocked by the defense, and so they go into a counter action, and that maybe is blocked by the defense. And then so a third action, a third thing is required in order to, to complete this play successfully. Successfully, um, putting it in basketball terms, balls moving. Right mm-hmm. when the ball is moving, what that really means is that decisions are being made both offensively and defensively. If the defense wasn't blocking a certain scoring attempt, the ball wouldn't move. The player would just score. On the right. other hand, if the defense, if the offense can't counter that defense, then possession is empty and you go back the other way when the ball moves when the when there's a lot of passing going on when players are moving there that's when we talk about good basketball so that's it demands certain choices both offensively and defensively i also would argue that the corollary is it's more visually appealing because there's just more energy more dynamic movement it's Stasis is inherently less interesting i would argue than mm-hmm. motion um now there's the value of a tableau, for example, can be there can be really powerful beauty in a, in a very specific or narrow image. Um, but when we're talking about a, an art form that's driven by motion, that's that that at some level, I think inherently greater motion is an inherent value of overstasis. And so when I talk about the aesthetics of choice, I think that what makes basketball fascinating to me is you can actually be fooled no matter how much you watch the game, you can be surprised by the choice that was made. The ability of a player to redirect almost instantaneously the anticipated outcome or the anticipated move. I thought the, you know, the analogy I gave you earlier is that the Golden State Warriors in their heyday would run a lot of actions away from the ball. Mm -hmm. But if you watched only the ball, you would just see a guy standing there and maybe he's going to throw a pass or maybe he's going to drive. But if you watch away from the ball, the other players 
players are initiating a movement and then making a choice once that is initiated. So a split cut is where theoretically two players come together and they run back the opposite direction. The idea is that you're trying to get the defender to get confused, which is another part of choice, right? All actions in basketball are basically designed to make the defense make a choice. If they don't have to make a choice, they're not confused, they're guarding you, you're not going to score. And so... They may choose to split and go opposite directions. They may choose to cross. When they cross, depending on which player the two defenders stick to, the other player may make a secondary movement to get open. The The third player is trying to determine whether or not to make that pass. So if it's Steph and Clay are splitting, Draymond's got the ball at the top of the circle. He's either going to drop the pass to the open player. He might drive. They might split again. They might cross each other. So these these decisions are all happening in microseconds. And when you see it in real time, what it looks like is an orchestrated movement. But what it really is, is a series of micro choices that are happening in real time all the time, which is why it's not just the same thing over and over again. You see a team set up in a horn set and you're like, okay, I know there's three different actions they can run off that. But the reality is there's 33, 53, 103 actions that they can run off that depending on how each individual choice is made. And for me as a viewer, even if I'm watching 82 games a season in the regular season, even if I'm watching the same players and the same teams over and over again, it's always different. It's always new. It's always unique. And is that true of good basketball or is that true of all basketball? Well, I think all basketball is choice driven. Mm-hmm. So um, I think for me, the the frequency of choice and the dynamic energy in the play um, distinguishes good basketball from bad basketball. In other words, um, just you know, you know, just James Harden just dry, isoing on a play, pounding the ball thirty times, and then pulling up for a three point shot. He makes that shot. It's three points. It's the same three points that that are scored off of a complex off ball action that mm-hmm. that puts a three point shooter open in the corner. They make that shot, and it's three. So it's the same outcome, right? Why do I think the complex action yielding a wide open three in the corner, which is a less difficult shot than James Harden hitting a step back three above the break, why is this first thing more attractive than the second thing? It would seem counterintuitive because of all the complexity that went into generating that shot. Um, James is going to miss or he's going to make. And then the next possession, he's going to miss or he's going to make. And that's fine if you're only invested in the Houston Rockets winning or James Harden winning or losing a a possession or the team winning or losing the game. But if you're invested in the aesthetic quality of the game as it's played, I think it's just kind of dull. Right. It's redundant, I guess, would be the thing I would say about it. And redundancy, I think, is the enemy of of art at some level. (laughs) Sure, and evolution. Um, And I think, so I was thinking last night that the way, the perspective that the game is filmed is not helping James Harden's case for an exciting game of basketball. Because if, if it was, if he was being filmed and he was being shown on TV from straight on, and we could see all of his dribbling and all of his moves from straight mm-hmm. on. And we, all of the other players were left out. It would be dynamic or a tableau, like mm-hmm. you were saying, this mm-hmm. one scene. Um, but when we see him doing that and there's all these other players standing still around him, it becomes this sort of deadened uh, sort of a, a play, a deadened right. play. That's so right. I think that he needs to talk to the league <laughs> about figuring out other ways that he, I mean, just because I, I don't want to downplay his craft or what he's able to accomplish right. and how talented he is. Um, I just think that when I'm looking at it on the TV, which is the majority of how people are taking in these games, it is extremely 
um, boring and kind of takes the it takes the life out of the play. That's right. And so I think you're absolutely right about that. And one of the things that's, that makes James Harden a hard watch aesthetically is that his game is very linear as well as being very static. By that I mean even when he's moving, he's moving in a straight line north-south to the basket. There's not a lot of shit, what they call shiftiness in sure, his game. Yeah. So as you say, when you're looking at his, when you're looking, when the angle of view, think of it as a camera position in a film, when the angle of view is at 90 degrees from his presence, what you see is him standing still. Right. You see him standing there and then you see him move from screen left to screen right or vice versa. You see the other players also static in in the frame. And so it's just kind of a dead frame. Right. Um, If you if you were trying to guard him and you see, you know, how shifty his moves are, his crossover between the legs is actually very narrow. It's almost like he's a, a pillar that's handling the ball. He's very physical and very solid yes. and very static and very staid and very difficult to guard as a result. From a right. from a basketball player's perspective, it's brutal trying to stay in front of this guy. He's large, he's gonna knock you over, and he's running right at you and there's nothing you can do about it. And he's it. anticipating all of your choices. That's like he, right. The, the, the way that he's been able to sort of teach himself uh, is to also respond to you um, automatically. Like right. he's built in your responses to his responses. So he's incredibly powerful in that sense. Right. There was a comment in last night's game where where a, a, an announcer said, no, the minute you reach in, it's over because he knows you're going to get there eventually. He's going to draw the foul at that moment. And you're you're at an incredible disadvantage. And you're so tempted to, to reach to try and stop his drive because it's so physical. He's going to run right through right. you that he's just... He's using the threat of the drive to get you to reach in. As soon as you reach in, he's going to lift up his arms and get the foul. Or if you stand there and don't reach in and you give him enough space, he's going to step back and hit a three. It's a perfect equation yeah. from from an effectiveness perspective. But all of that action happens in a box of about three feet by three feet. There's very little movement to it. And the rest of the squad is standing around effectively waiting to see what's going to happen. Now, if he drives and the defense comes to check the drive, then he's very good at passing into a corner. I mean, he's not going to just blow the play. But again, all of that action is so limited. Um, In last night's game, the uh, uh, the uh, Hawks-Houston game, Harden had an amazing first quarter. I mean, just by any basketball right. analysis standard, he scores 22 points in the quarter. He's on pace to be the third player ever to score 90 points in a game. <laughs> he's eviscerating the, the the Atlanta Hawks, which are a poor team, poor defense, but sure. he's just taking them apart. They're up and coming, let's say. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> They're coming. Wait, wait, wait. We're hoping they'll get yes. good. And we should probably get into the contrast between... Trey Young as a ball dominant player and James Harden as a ball dominant player too right. and the way these things track differently I would argue aesthetically um, but he's dominating the game I mean it's it's unquestionable that he is dominating the game in in a way that if you're only invested in the point score or the win loss outcome you just can't deny it but there were 20 I believe 29 possessions I don't have the stats in front of you 29 possessions in the first quarter um, James Harden was the primary ball handler in 26 of those 29 possessions in 16 of them he never passed the ball nobody else wow. on the offense touched the ball in 16 of those possessions in the nine possessions where he passed there was either he either passed directly for an assist so there was only one pass in that possession yeah. only two times was there a second pass the three times he didn't he didn't you know have the ball at the initial possession the other three players just drove right to the hoop and didn't pass either so now you're talking about a whole quarter of basketball where the ball was literally passed a total of i think 11 or 12 times right and 
from the perspective of individual greatness, there there's a perspective from which that's a very exciting thing to watch. But watching James Harden individually be great is like watching a man stand someplace, do something so incredible that nobody can stop him from doing it. But the thing in and of itself, frankly, is just not that inherently interesting to watch. Right. And I think that that's why some of the plays that get, you know, put on Sports Center because he's constantly, you know, the, his step backs, his dribbling, mm-hmm. it's constant, it's amazing um, in, in in his level of skill. But the plays that get played on repeat on Sports Center and stuff like that are when someone, he steps back on people and all of a sudden there's space that mm-hmm. didn't exist before. And then that's a more interesting play because, I mean, he tricked someone and he got that, you know, that, that play from last year where that guy like fell over and mm-hmm. then he, you know, waited for yeah. three seconds and then he shot. I mean, it's because... There was space for something. He, because that guy was was tricked. There was space for something to occur, which right. made it m- more interesting to watch. Right. So even though this amazing thing is taking place, like all of these possessions, it's so um, it's so hard to access it from the perspective that we have, mm-hmm. um, unless something this a huge sort of event occurs within right. that play. Right. I mean, and I mean, you bring up space. I mean, one of the other as- attributes I think is sing not singular about basketball, at least unique to basketball, is the degree to which it is a game about creating space. Um, It's a very small court. These players are enormous human beings. Um, If you've ever played basketball against people who are sized, if if only sized to be professional athletes, much less actually capable of doing it, the amount of space that five individuals, six seven six eight six nine take up on a basketball floor is mind-blowing if you've never been out there so the game is all about creating space not just for yourself but for teammates right to open space up in a game that is by its very nature closed and it's that tension that i think makes each play sort of interesting what every play is really designed to do is to create space so what james harden does is he creates space for himself he creates space for himself by having that incredible crossover jab step forward step back he creates space enough to get the shot off and away you go. He also creates space by driving and drawing the defense to him so when he's kicking out for those passes, he's opening space for his teammates. So he creates space in those two ways. But most of the time, if he's not executing those two things, he's actually compressing space on the floor because the ball is static. No one else is moving. Other players don't have to move to guard anybody so they can just stand in space and occupy the most of the most space relative to their team, the, the opposing team that they can. And when he jab steps in, and either drives or steps in for the, the step back three, he's right. actually compressing space down. So he creates for himself but not necessarily for others. Yes. We brought up Trey Young earlier. The contrast between somebody like Trey Young, as much as he's flawed now, especially on the defensive end, um, is that when he takes a pull-up 30-footer, it's like, oh, my God, what a dumb shot. But when he makes a few of those, the the defense has to expand itself out, which actually creates space behind the defensive line. Mm -hmm. So he's creating space not just for his own 30-footer, but he's creating space for all the other players to begin to move and move effectively around the basket. So it, this is all part of the the art of well-played basketball to me right. is, is a player creating for others, creating for the entire team, creating a geometry on the floor that is aesthetically pleasing. Seeing 10 guys in a crowd around the basket is just not that attractive to me. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I think that this also really speaks to what I look for in aesthetically pleasing basketball is, and this is a little bit more emotionally driven, but I want to see that players need each other. For mm-hmm. me, basketball can is an example of a space where all of these players need each other in order to get to a next level, 
win a game, whatever it is. And so I like seeing that so um, sort of built into the game. Right. And I think that when it's so focused on the skills of one player that he doesn't need, Mm -hmm. he doesn't need his teammates. And then it becomes, it, it loses that power to me of this example of maybe how we all could be more like about you know we all could live our lives like basketball players it's play basketball. It's a game of sharing. It's I a mean, game of sharing. It's a yes, game of sharing. Relying um, and, and I think also this goes back to this idea of vulnerability of like sort of asking for help or you know every time someone passes the ball it's like they're looking for their teammate they're finding right. their teammate in some That's way. Right. So I think I had just watched before um, I got here today I just watched a. a a compilation of Steve Nash clips mm-hmm. and also a player that I think um, similar to maybe Luka Doncic a little bit has this idea of that there's some desperation I mean he's he's very much responding to mm-hmm. what's going on right in that moment rather than anticipating a bunch of things it seemed like a lot of in, right. in his in he's his probing probe is the term in basketball yeah. he's probing he's probing he's probing all the time trying to make a space for something to happen right but it just seemed so much that he was so aware of where everyone else was right. and what he could do for them. And if you know he had the shot, he'd take the shot. If he's if he's um, if there's a way he can get it to a teammate in between two other players curved around, whatever right. it is, no look, he's going to do that. And it's just if that feels that to me as a as a person who wants to feel like basketball can be sort of exemplify how we can do better in our own lives. That's right. I want to see that all the time, and so. James Harden, I respect you, of course. I just, I, I want, I want him, to, I want to see that he needs his teammates more. Well, and there's a couple of themes I'd like to pick up on there. One, when we talk in basketball about a creator or a player who's creative, we're typically talking about somebody who is, who is facilitating others. When we talk about a player who can get their own basket, we call them a bucket getter. It's yeah. a getter, right? I'm going to go get this thing. But we say somebody like LeBron James creates for his teammates. Somebody like Steve Nash, his primary his sense of his primary sense of his own purpose on the floor was to create for the other teammates. Now, how do you do that? You do that by being a threat, right? So that people have to respect your game. Right. You draw attention for sure, but the purpose of drawing the attention is to create space for others, perhaps people who are less skilled than you. And so your job isn't just to show I can get my own anytime I want. It's to get yours in order to create for others. And I don't think it's coincidental that the term of art in basketball is creator for that role. Right. Um, lots of times people talk about somebody like James Harden. They talk about, well, he creates some for his teammates as well because he, he has a number of assists. He has averages 10, 11, you know, 7, 8, 9 assists a game. But the Houston Rockets as a whole rank in the bottom two or three teams in the NBA in total team assists. He's not really creating opportunities for other people to create. Um, they're, I think, dead last in what are called secondary assists, which is the pass that leads to the right. assist um, because he's dominating the ball. And again, these terms, these metaphors we use are not coincidental when we talk talk about a ball dominant player that doesn't really have a positive connotation um and i think it does tie back to that consciously or unconsciously there is this sense of aesthetic principle when when we talk about good or beautiful basketball and part of it is that basketball is an egalitarian game there are five players on each squad on the floor at any given time they have roles to be sure, but they're not nearly as circumscribed as the roles in other team sports. They're really quite general and quite fluid. Mm-hmm. And in the modern 
bas- modern game of basketball, more than ever, we talk about positionless players, and I'm just a basketball player. I'm not going to be this type of player or that type of player. And it's because there's this sharing, inclusive, egalitarian sort of nature to the game that I think is fundamental to it when it's well played. And the beautiful thing is that when it's played that way, as we saw with the Golden State Warriors for the last five years, it's very successful. Now, granted, you better have some top-tier talent, right? right? But it can be it can be very successful as well as well as being very beautiful to watch. Yes, and I think that it's important to recognize that in order to make this beautiful basketball work, it do, you do need players that are on board and that have the skill level to catch the passes to 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 um, pass the passes right. in a way that is. Um, helpful and and sort of that that you are able to find each other over and over again. I think that we're seeing the opposite of that. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, like the Warriors are just they're not as on the same page yeah. as they had been. For they the don't past have the skills. Years. They don't have the skilled players. Right. right. And also, I mean, I think we were seeing that last night with the Hawks is that they're not able to um, anticipate or sort of um, that even though they were playing, I think they it seemed as though they were playing more interesting. Right. type of basketball to me than the Rockets, it still felt like they're they're not quite there with sort of where... The skill set's not there. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at the fourth quarter of that game as the Rockets were sort of imploding and the Hawks were coming back, there were multiple instances where the Hawks could have closed the gap. And most of those plays were contingent on the threat of Trey Young, right? Whether it was a drive or a kick for a pass or a three, he made yeah. a few threes, drove in and got some buckets. When he kicked out, when he created the space for his teammates by being effective in those moments, right? By being by having um, gravity, right? People are attracted to him and that the attraction of those players to him creates space for others. When he had those moments of gravity, the other players weren't sufficiently skilled to cash in. And so, of course, you have to have highly skilled players right. in order to make it beautiful because there's, well, the, you know, zing, 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 ball moves five, six times, hits the corner three and the guy buries it. That's the most beautiful brand of basketball to me. If the guy misses the shot, it's just kind of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yeah. Right. There's not a Clay Thompson on every game. <laughs> correct. Correct. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I think that that uh, to me. One of the things I think is fascinating is that even though from a, when you look at highlight packages or ways in which the game is promoted, we see dunks and we see threes or we see spectacular crossovers. When we hear the commentators, even during the game, talking about a beautiful player, or a beautiful basketball, it's usually ball movement. It's usually player movement. Oftentimes it's a lesser talented player hitting a wide open three after the ball has moved and pat and passed four five six times right. around and it's like that was really fun to watch even though the best player on the court wasn't the one that scored the basket yes and i think again the best player can be so valuable without shooting right you know like steph curry ever you know, when he was really um just in the past couple of years when everyone was just double teaming him all the time that right. was really valuable to the game even right. though he wasn't making every shot and and James Harden had that same power but he's still shooting so much and even right. during last night's game I, I think it was in the second quarter he dunked the ball along the baseline it was like this very sort of old school move it felt mm-hmm. and not not even a place on the court that I normally see James Harden and I think that I'm remembering that play so much more than any other right. basket he scored that night because it was it, it was different it was different it was outside of his normal sort of right. like toolbox of a ways of, of getting uh, points and I was just like wow James Harden that's great you know whereas he's you know already scored so many points and I was like alright that's enough you know so it's just that one thing that was kind of uh, appeared 
weird that he had some kind of like creativity inside right. him that where he was I think it also I want to get into these two words of strategic versus reaction mm-hmm. where he seemed to be reacting to what was available to him rather than coming up the court and knowing okay this person's guarding me that means that I know that I can do this mm-hmm. that and the other mm-hmm. it seemed more that he was like oh this space is here this is what I'm going to do which was so much more unexpected and, and thrilling right well there's I mean again getting back to aesthetic, aesthetic principles repetitiveness and predictability are dull like yeah. that which is unique that which is surprising that which um, creates awe and wonder is usually something that is unexpected right it, and so when it, and it was actually the first quarter but it was the only outlier of that a massive first quarter outburst every other every other point he scored was a dribble drive to the basket foul and or bucket or a step back or a step back three yeah right and so like and literally from the same 15% of um, the top of the key to the fou- to the above the break three on the left or the above the break three on the right. So he's working in this narrow zone and he's working in a straight line and he's working incredibly effectively, but it's just redundant. It's just, and there's no passing. There's yes. no other action setting those plays up. It's just one thing after another thing after another thing. The outlier was that baseline dunk on an inbounds play. Yeah. And it's like, hey, look at that. He can do something else <laughs> besides that. Right. Um, because we crave, aesthetically as human beings, I think we crave diversity. We crave variety. We crave the unique, the new, the dynamic. And so, yeah, it's just it, it, effective for sure, but actually interesting to watch. <laughs> right. And I was just, I, I think you bring up the foul shots is so important because that is also just this like thing that really hurts the excitement or the, the visual right. excitement of the game. Um, and I uh, last night, I mean, James Harden was getting fouled so much. The Rockets were getting fouled a lot and they were going to the line a lot. I think like 20 mm-hmm. foul shots in the first half or something. Right. 22. And the and I was watching the um, the the Rockets announcers were, were the ones that I was listening to and they were talking about like how often the Rockets were going to the line and how much that was helping them. Right. Meanwhile, every time James Harden doesn't get a call, he's like rolling his eyes. Yes, he's talking to exactly. the rest. It's like, but your own broadcasters are saying it. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, you know, you probably heard this story from a few weeks back that a, a fan who was sitting baseline yelled at James, um, you know, I don't come here to see you get to see you get shoot foul shots. And and James yelled back, I don't come here to get fouled. But the fact is he does go there to get fouled. It's part of his strategic approach to the game. And it's brilliant strategically. I'm yes, going to get fouled. I'm going to get threes. And I'm going to get to the bucket, right? Um, and he, of course he's coming there to get fouled. That's, as we talked about earlier, when he's waiting for you to reach in so he can lift his arms to get fouled, to go to the foul line, to score points, it from a bottom line perspective it makes all the sense in the world but from an aesthetic perspective yes. it's just deadly dull it's clunky <laughs> and I mean he's not the only one that does it because most players know especially stars know that um, this is a way to get points this is a way to win mm-hmm. um, and this is a way to hurt the other team right. because if you know there's a limited amount of fouls that the, that the, the defensive players can get so it's like everything supports the idea of them getting fouled you know that's the way the game is designed right now and that's the way it's being played which is I think James Harden is taking advantage of that, but it's not to do with him specifically because it's more of a structural problem within right. what what the refs decide to call or what the refs are told to call. Right. No, yeah. It's, it's certainly the, the emphasis recently on, you know, freedom of movement for perimeter players has made it so that when you have any, when these hand checking rules are in place, any kind of restriction of movement creates a foul and then... For the smart players, and certainly James Harden's not alone. This Steph, our boy Steph, has of done course. this quite a bit too. What I call foul hunting. <laughs> yeah. he's, going foul, oh, he's going foul hunting. Yeah. Um, 
the, but there's that it, it creates incentive, right? Foul hunt so that you can get to the line, you can get easy points. It, it makes all the sense in the world from a bottom line perspective. But we've talked a lot about James here. The foul hunting in the NBA, I think, is equally aesthetically unpleasing. It's so clearly a um, non-organic motion. And that's really mm-hmm. where it gets unpleasing, right? Why is it so unpleasing to watch the people go hunting for fouls? Because it's not an organic part of the game. It's a motion that is contrived right. and doesn't really have the same flow and feeling as beautiful ball movement. And to, a, to return to a point you made earlier, these are incredible athletes physically um quite beautiful to watch actually and that's another thing reason why i think basketball is more aesthetic arguably than other sports is they're visual they're visible to us and we feel like we have an intimacy with them but that's most of the game when somebody goes foul hunting kicking their legs out on a three-point attempt or leaning sideways when they're trying to shoot or jumping into a guy because he's left his feet um strictly speaking it's the rule and how it should be interpreted but it damages the aesthetic quality of the game And and again I'm not the only person who thinks this. You listen to Stan, Van, you know, Je- Stan Van Gundy or Jeff Van Gundy, excuse me, is saying, yeah. you know, I wish they would just eliminate foul, like flopping from the game. And if you go foul hunting, the call should go the other way. As observers of the game, many of us believe that this is actually not good. Now, clearly, it's good for scoring. It's good for the team that's trying to win. So, in what way isn't it good? It's not good aesthetically. Right, exactly. And I think that, so this, being that this podcast is called Dear Adam Silver, I think we can specifically address Adam Silver in <laughs> this case and say, we are fans who, you know, one of us is a League Pass subscriber. <laughs> like, we should have a say in this because it is so, it's infuri- it was infuriating when it happened on the Warriors, when, I mean, when the Warriors are, are foul hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's infuriating on every team when it's just this awkward movement that, and also I think sometimes a little bit dangerous to like throw half your For body sure. into the side of someone. And it's just so obvious and and just, I guess, I mean, without a better word, it's like a little icky. It just yeah. feels a little slimy. It's contrived. Yes, it's, it's super contrived. contrived. And so this is going to this question that I have about what do the players think makes for aesthetically pleasing basketball? Because let's say James Harden thinks that what, what the way that he's playing the game is aesthetically exciting, aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. Those choices that he's making make for, quote unquote, good basketball. That's totally his. I, I respect that. I, mm-hmm. I support that. But this idea that then where does flopping come into that that conversation? Because flopping is so obvious. I mean, it's just a joke. Mm-hmm. It, it's this, it, and, and it is not aesthetically pleasing at all. So how can you how can you think of the game in this aesthetic way? Because I know that sometimes players are doing things because they think they know that they look compelling. They right. know that they'll come off as compelling to the viewer. So then flopping is just such a. I, I literally in my notes I wrote down where is it. Um, Elegant moves versus flopping, OMG. Yeah. Like, it's just such a joke. <laughs> exactly. How how can you go from this beautiful teardrop shot to like flailing your arms? That's like we know how much control you have over your body. We just saw it. Well, this is the, I mean, this is perhaps the limits of this analogy as we talk about basketball from the perspective of aesthetics or art. I mean, there is a bottom line requirement for a basketball player and a basketball team, which is to win the basketball game, right? So the, usually yeah. the tension point is between something that's aesthetic or organic, maybe even be a better way of putting it to the game, and something that facilitates the winning but or might facilitate winning, but is somehow a violation of this organic or aesthetic nature. Now, the player's job is to win. The coach's job is to coach to win. Um, you know, S- Steve Kerr, my guy, Steve yeah, Kerr, of course. Um, Shout out. <laughs> spent years 
trying to convince Steph to go foul hunting more because like w- the way he plays the game, so many people are like pressing up on him and bodying up on him when he's shooting. It's like, look, if you use this thing and this thing, you'll get to the foul line yeah. many, many more times the game. And Steph has done a lot more of that over the last couple of years of his career. Um, interestingly, Steve Kerr has tried to make the same arguments with Clay, and Clay's like, no. I'm just I'm just catching and letting it go. That. I'm not waiting around for some guy to foul me or try to draw a foul. I'm just going to catch it and let it go. And if I get fouled, I get fouled. But I'm not kicking my legs out. I'm not changing my motion yeah. to try and draw a foul. Um, so, but so why is Steve Kerr doing that? Steve Kerr, I mean, the very almost the missionary for beautiful basketball, for passing, for joy of the game, is still telling Steph, "Look, you got to go foul hunting." It's because his job is to win games. Yeah. His job is to win basketball games, and this is a lost opportunity to, to score points. And this is, again, where I think as fans, um, we make choices with who we root for, right? We make choices in, in, in what we engage with. We make choices in terms of what we tell Adam Silver we think is beautiful basketball versus not beautiful basketball. If we don't want to see foul hunting, I would it would make my day if they every time somebody exaggerated emotion to try and draw a foul as an offensive player they just either wiped it away or called it as an offensive foul. People would stop doing it. These are brilliant players. Oh, yeah. They know exactly what they're doing. Totally. You have to create the rule because and the rule has to be driven around aesthetics. Now the NBA has made rules driven around aesthetics for its whole history. Um, you know, the 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 hand-checking rules on the perimeter to begin with were designed to create more motion more movement in the game, less posting up, less stasis. This principle of stasis versus motion has been a deciding point in basketball throughout its hundred, near 100-year hundred history, the the attraction, the desire when creating a product, right, when creating this thing you're trying to present to people as an aesthetic and emotional experience. When you're doing that, you want to make it beautiful. You want to make it engaging. You want to make it attractive right. forever, whether it's the uh, elimination – first, the elimination of the zone defense, which they did to try and create more motion because they wanted the defenses to move more. Then they brought the zone defense back because they were tired of, like, teams being able to just put four guys on one side of the floor and then one-on-one on the other side because right. that's boring or it's two-man game and everybody else is out of the picture. They're cl- to hand-checking rules, to rules about um, not having too much physicality in the paint. These are all rules designed to create motion, space, and beauty. The three-point line in itself was designed to create motion and space around the game, so it wasn't static. This is not a unique idea that I'm having here. But so, And that's why I think that there is something foundational about basketball around the idea of motion and aesthetics. Yes, and I think that that works so well in comparison to, let's say, a painting or even a photograph or another way that we are, that visual artists are seeking to fill space in a compelling way. And sometimes that's choosing to not fill the space fully. And sometimes that's to to completely, it just, it's it, right. it, it, it's a composition. Mm-hmm. And that's what, the, that's what the players are creating is a composition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the three-point line is so important. Um, I guess on the... Hawks practice court, they have a four-point line. That's right. And so the uh, broadcasters were talking about that last night, and one of them was like, ah, four-point line, like, that's too gimmicky. But I was just thinking, like, like, I want more space. Right. You know, that's exciting to right. me to think about the, the the play being run from that much further out right. uh, and having that many more sort having that much more space to fill or not fill right. based on based on what's uh what the play is. So I think that um I can understand that that it, it there is this idea it's a little gimmicky. It's like one of those arcade games where you're throwing the ball into like all the circles and mm-hmm. whichever you know, it's like it is a little, it's a game, but it is a game and we are reaching a point where 
it is not as big of a deal when people make a three-pointer as it once right. was. So I think that it is actually a compelling idea to to bring the the to create a a higher stakes higher point line, line point in the game. Right. No, I agree and I think that, you know, the back to what we were talking about with Trey Young earlier, the reason why the Atlanta Hawks specifically drafted Trey Young as he was a player capable of creating that space due to the range on his shot. There's not that many players capable of doing that, though there right. are more coming all the time. Basketball, the people who are get who get paid to design winning basketball teams have figured out that and have always known that space is the most priceless commodity in basketball in terms of the execution of play. You have to be able to create space for all your players and um Pivoting real quick to the other game we talked about last night, yeah. which was which was uh, Dallas versus Denver. This is I, I I sent this tweet out a few weeks ago that um and like people are having the the traditional Luka Doncic versus Trey Young debate because they were traded for each other, yes. right? So this is a debate that's going to go on ad nauseum forever. And um, just to be clear, I think Trey Young has many flaws in his game, and I think Luka Doncic is fantastic and is likely to be a generational player. He's also on a much better basketball team than Trey Young is. The talent right. surrounding him is vastly superior but what i tweeted was the step back three creates one shot the pull-up 30 footer if you can hit it creates every shot Mm -hmm. and that's really i think one thing that looking at the game aesthetically you realize is that and and certainly steph curry taught us this when they would blitz him 30 feet from the basket because they were so terrified that he was going to pull up for a three what that creates is four on three basketball below that line suddenly there is so much more space on the court than there was previously and so i think understanding that space both aesthetically and functionally is the game is is just can't be overstated yes and it seemed also last night in the hawks game that the idea that when Trey Young can shoot from so far out, I feel like they were still missing a lot of rebounds. That was something mm-hmm. that the, it was really hurting the Hawks was that they weren't getting offensive rebounds. Right. And they were really being killed by Clint Capella. Turns out there's something in his contract about um, re- a certain amount of rebounds. <laughs> I guess some kind of bonus. So, like, go for it, Clint Capella. But I think that um, there is this – it is – Everyone needs to be on board with that system in order for it to work mm-hmm. effectively. So, right. yes, the, putting the ball up for so far out and having the time and the space for people to then react in a right. way that's effective can be very impactful in the game, but is not necessarily if, if no one is, is reacting to it in the way that is needed. Right. As we talked about before, I mean, the, the, when, when Trey drives because he's brought those defenders out, so he's created all this space for driving right. lanes. Um there's still three other defenders back there. And if they close him off, he's, his play is to pass the ball to a teammate for an open shot. If that open, if that teammate can't convert that play, then you know the, that creation of space didn't help. But that will come in time and come with talent. Um, I think the interesting thing about somebody like, like Luca is the degree to which he can dominate without creating that space. But this goes back to an observation you made to me about him being seeking, that he's always trying to seek to create something. He's mm-hmm. almost like trying to... We feel that he's forcing things. Well, part of what we why we feel he's forcing things is we see the compaction of space. We see him moving through bodies trying to trying to eke out space and there's none available and it just feels forced in a very in a very literal sense of that word, right? It feels like he's trying to create something out of nothing whereas the open space creates more organic opportunity and and ball and player move just more elegantly, more freely. Yeah. 
And it is interesting because he's so Luka Doncic is so incredibly talented, like you were saying that that it's just it it, seems... it almost doesn't matter, right? He can still create a shot right. despite it. No, he and he can he can do whatever he wants almost every time. I mean, aside from scoring necessarily, he can <laughs> he can get the shot that he wants almost right. every time he goes down the court, which is like that's an incredible thing. There's a huge something to be said for that. But at the same time, it just it does feel that he's not he's not skipping a beat he's not um waiting for anything to come he is completely right. wanting to be in control which i think is a difficult place to come from because there's four other people who also can contribute all these things so i think that the, and i'm not sure um what I, I hadn't watched him play in europe and so i don't know how that what was his, his experience was like there with his teammates or or what it is but i'm sure that it's something that he might like um, loosen his grip a little bit over time, potentially. Right. right. Um, it reminds me actually a lot of the early LeBron James years when he was so ball dominant and so capable yes. of of con- there's these there's control and there's creation, right? And creation is a vulnerable act at some level, and then there's control, which is I'm I'm going to set up the all the pieces on the chessboard and I'm going to determine what happens. The contrast I would make is that I think James Harden is a controlling player. He wants to control every action. The simplest way to control it is to never pass the ball, right? I'm in control of everything at yeah. that point on an offensive possession. I'm going to do this. If the if the defender reacts this way, then I'm going to do that. If they react this third way, then I'm going to do this. I've got it all scripted out in the head. I'm ahead. I'm in control. Creating is a vulnerable act. That kind of control is not a particularly vulnerable act. You might be successful or you might fail, but it's not about vulnerability. Creating is about, I'm going to create this opportunity and rely on my teammate to do something. I'm going to relinquish control at that last moment mm-hmm. and get hopefully get fulfillment and even greater fulfillment by seeing my teammate do something. For, I think, Luca right now, he's in that balance point because, as you said, he can get a shot pretty much any time he wants to. He can get a good shot for him pretty much any time he wants to. Um, but, of course, he's also creating for his teammates. I mean, his stat line indicates it, and the team's play indicates it. So him finding the balance between relinquishing control to be creative and understanding that creativity is kind of an act of vulnerability in that right, sense. Right, totally. Um, you know, that's an evolutionary thing that I think we'll get to much as LeBron's got to. And and I have to say, just kind of rounding out our current two around the NBA, I am not a L.A. Lakers guy, having grown up in an era where the Lakers were the preferred franchise, I think, for everybody. I just kind of went the other way. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't super excited when LeBron and AD teamed up in, in, in uh, Los Angeles. But the quality of basketball, if I just take that fan brain away of the person who's rooting for a specific team or another and just really focus on the aesthetics, the brand of basketball is beautiful. And it's yeah. because LeBron has really found a teammate that he feels totally confident in relinquishing control to. Like, I will share with you and I will create for you, but I don't need to control through the entire process. And it was hard to see LeBron in Cleveland feeling that he had to do everything. Right. And if he didn't do one thing, then, I mean, as we saw in the first game of the last finals that the Cavaliers <laughs> played and that he, he wasn't able to necessarily rely on his his teammates um, as much as he is now. Yeah, I mean, individually, that was maybe the most dominant basketball performance I've ever seen, the game one of, of the, what would that be, the 18 finals. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it was phenomenal. I mean, probably the best single-player performance I've ever seen, and yet they still lost the game. And indeed, certainly there were failures on the part of teammates, but you could tell that he was... In 
I'm just going to make this happen for us mode. I'm going to be the one that right. can make this happen. And the reality is that basketball is a, it, there's 10 guys on the floor. It's a team sport. Yeah. And back to a point you made earlier, I think what's beautiful about basketball for me is that it is a game where sharing is a foundational principle of the game. I mean, the oldest, the, the most fundamental play in basketball is the give and go. Yeah. Right. I give the ball up. I get it back. Yes, totally. <laughs> but it's, I can't get it back if I don't give it up first. <laughs> right. It feels like it's so aligned with like physics and all of that. Right. I mean, it's just like everything is balanced within that way of, of working where it's like letting go and then receiving. Right. And I think that when I see such a similarity to LeBron from Luca, it's because it's when he's driving to the basket. Mm -hmm. It's when he's like, I can't get the shot and I have to take control. And he just like goes sort of like full head of steam right. towards the basket. And that's when I'm like, this looks so familiar. Today's episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. Bookman's is an entertainment exchange with six locations in Southern Arizona. Bookman's brings people together around their favorite books, records, and other forms of entertainment. Whatever you are searching for to read, listen to, or watch, Bookman's has an expansive selection of options. For those listeners who are living outside of Arizona and can't directly support Bookman's, I encourage you to support your local bookstores and buy secondhand. It is good for the community and good for the environment, and I'm so grateful that Bookman's is willing to collaborate with local artists like myself. It is wonderful to work with an organization that truly understands the practice of giving back. For more information, please visit www.bookmans.com. So yeah, so last night in the first quarter, Luca's, you know, he's taken step back. So he takes four step backs, makes one, and then he starts to realize that maybe that part of his game's not there for him that night. And so he begins his driving game and he makes a few buckets, I think just to draw gravity to himself, you know, from the defense. And then he starts to distribute. He's making just laser passes, um, cross court and ball reversal passes. And like, I love the term ball reversal because it's something that coaches would always say, you got to reverse the basketball, you got to reverse the basketball. Well, why? Well, what it does is get the defense to shift, which does what? create space right so if you this is a weird geeky exercise but you might be intrigued to do it sometime just watch an nba basketball game and just think of did they reverse the basketball that possession and that's literally just there's a line, take draw a line from the top of the key to the basket did the ball cross both sides of that line or did it stay on one side yeah. the whole possession the efficiency rate of scoring when you reverse the basketball even one time is like an increase of 50 percent and it's just because the defense has to move to react to you and you get space out of the deal. So I think Luca, um, getting back to the LeBron uh, comparison, what he does and what he does so brilliantly is create so much gravity to himself and then utilize that gravity to distribute to his teammates in a really in a really just beautiful watch. And when he's doing that, I think he's one of the more beautiful players in the league to watch for sure. Right, and I think that that's why he's more compelling on the Lakers than he mm. was on the Cavs. Yeah, LeBron um, for sure. Yeah, so that's that is it is exciting. I could watch the Lakers play the Clippers every day. <laughs> I think. I mean, and also last night's game between Dallas and Denver was so good. It was a great game. Yes, it and I don't know if Kristaps Porzingis, if he was in there, if that would have like made a dramatic change in how things went. But it was just like. I loved like the almost and the so close and it just it felt like they were constantly they were just I think that there's so many exciting there's a lot of exciting games happening in a way this year that are possible because there's not one team that's so much better than everyone else. Well, and then, I mean, certainly the critique of the of the Warriors, their level of dominance created a certain elegance to the game, but it did take a lot of the a lot of the. Um, 
suspense away, right? Yeah. They're just going to win. And it was beautiful to watch. It was wonderful to watch how they move the ball. Um, I mean, I've heard all kinds of, you know, metaphors about the the Lakers and their Gorham age for people who love them and hate them being just like, it's just wrong. It's too good. It's yeah. too pretty, you know. Um, you know, Charles Barkley never liked them because they, you know, shot the ball too much and didn't play gritty a gritty style of basketball. I'm always fascinated by all these metaphors we use to describe basketball aesthetically in a way that I don't think get applied to other sports, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something fundamental about this idea. But it is nice now from a competitive balance perspective to see more balance in the league. You mentioned the the Lakers and the Clippers. Emotionally, I like a lot of the Clippers better, and I'm not a huge Lakers fan. But aesthetically, I would much rather watch the Lakers because they distribute the ball more. The The Clippers are really an ISO heavy. They got three ISO guys. In the, in the fourth quarter, they're just going to run Kawhi ISO, Paul George ISO, Lou Williams ISO, right. and or maybe a high screen roll. And it's just kind of, again, like if I'm, it, I'm torn because the aesthetic part of my brain wants to be a Lakers fan. The traditional kind of fan who never liked the Lakers and had all these this other baggage, if you will, associated with them, wants to cheer for the Clippers. Yes, and I think that one issue that Kawhi is bumping up against for me is that since that shot in the um, Eastern Semis last year at the buzzer in the corner, uh, like the shot of the mm-hmm. decade almost, he... He can't, like, none of his other shots are that interesting yeah. to me. I'm like, you already did the <laughs> amazing the one. thing. You got the one. Yeah, you like, <laughs> you did the incredible thing that like no one believed was possible. That was like one in a million. Like, what does it matter if you're hitting this mid range jumper? You know, yeah. it's like I have just no. Another, yeah, just another dribble in mid range jumper. <laughs> right. Great. Right. So it's just I think that 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 really like set this new center where I'm like, if you're not on like crouched down in the corner watching your shot go in, you know, on the edge of your seat, like it's not worth it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, it's it's. I was gonna say, but fandom's a huge part of like what we think of as aesthetics, right? When you've been watching a team that plays a certain way your whole life, and you've invested in that team, those aesthetics become part of what you value. And totally. And uh, and so it, you know, I don't want to try and oversimplify this and argue like, well, there's this purity of aesthetics that good basketball is this and not that. Of a lot of it is really what you, the larger context of how you value the game. Um, and you know, watching. A dominant player like Michael Jordan can be equally kind of fulfilling and and ecstatic, if you will, as watching a team like Golden State, which is all about ball movement and sharing. Right. right? Um, and I think part of this is the you know the idea of singularity. Like, how much is singularity a an important value proposition in what we admire? Certainly, James Harden is a very singular player. There's never been a guy like him, um, and and his skill level and what he does is not only unique to him. I've never seen another player play quite this way. Um, it's highly effective. And oh, yeah. so if I was a Houston Rockets fan, I'd probably think that that style of basketball, especially if I was a younger fan and hadn't really seen a lot of others, I would think that's the best basketball there is right there. Yeah dribble 15 times and then pull up for a step back three. Totally. And I think that like like I was saying, even though I'm totally anti these um, offensive fouls that, that people are like seeking, the, mm-hmm. the, the outside shooters are seeking out, when Steph would get fouled doing that, I'd be like, better make those shots. You know, <laughs> it's like I still want my team to like capitalize on that mm-hmm. play. Um, I think that that's a it's a, it is it was important that you acknowledge that the bottom line is is winning which i think sometimes 
um, winning is such a, it's like a teeny part of it at the end mm -hmm. of this like saga that you're involved with for, you know, two and a half hours between the halftime and the sideline mm -hmm. reporting and the commercials. And it's mm -hmm. like all of a sudden the, the winning is such a tiny part of it. And so some, I, I get um, caught up in all the other stuff that comes before, but really they, they are mm -hmm. trying to win. And I think that what could be interesting also is this situation, like Mike D'Antoni as the coach for, um, as a coach for the Houston Rockets, working with James Harden, when he has this experience of having worked with Steve Nash, mm -hmm. who is a different type of point guard, a different type of player, different mentality, approaches the position in a very different way. And that that Phoenix Suns team, having set the tone for uh, a sort of way of playing basketball that then permeated like the whole 2010s. That's right. And so then at the end of the 2010s, he's working with this like anti, I mean, this <laughs> other like the anti-Steve Nash. The no, anti for sure. Steve Nash. And it's so, I mean, uh, or, you know, maybe Steve Nash is the anti-James Harden. I mean, you can't be anti before it shows up, but it's like, <laughs> it's just this idea that like I wonder what what is what game does Mike D'Antoni want to watch? Like when he watches a game, what does he want to see? Well, I mean, he wants to win. Well, I mean, and it's funny because if you had asked me that question five years ago, I mean, Mike D'Antoni was seven seconds or less. Like the ball's going to go up and the ball's going to move. I mean, now I often joke that it's what seven seconds or less of of James dribbling for no apparent reason at the top of the key. Yeah, is that the rule now right. before something actually happens? But like any coach, the bottom line is the bottom line. He's coaching the talent he has to the best outcome. And frankly, I mean, the, the, the team he's playing for, the, the whole organization he's playing for has decided that, you know, threes, layups and foul shots are the most statistically advantageous things you can achieve on the offensive end of a basketball court. And we have a guy who is uniquely gifted in shooting threes, getting layups and getting fouled. And so why would we want to create a different trajectory than what he's on right now, it's working. Now, from a bottom line perspective, you can awful talk, also talk about the weakness of that. And then we saw that, I think, in last night's Hawks game, even though they won the game. You know, James scores 22 in the first quarter. He, I think, had 41 for the game. Great stat line. Yeah. But his efficiency was horrifying. I think he took 23-point shots, um, shot about 30% overall, got to the foul line some. Um, but most of those shots, he was just jacking up by himself with no possibility of the other teammates being able to contribute. And they slowly had their lead eroded over the course of the next three quarters to the point where they almost lost the game. So you can point to the final outcome and say they won, or you can point to the failure of performance really from the first quarter on and say, hey, this, this is not a really durable way of playing basketball. This is not a way that will win at the highest level. So even from that perspective, it's not great. And arguably, it's not aesthetic either. So yeah. to, from D'Antoni's perspective, I can only imagine that he's like, these are the cards I have to play, and I'm going to play them to the best degree that I can. If you got him in a room and gave him truth serum and said, is this the most beautiful basketball you've ever seen, or would you rather be with the 2010 you know, Suns? I'd like to think he'd rather be with the 2010 Suns, but that's just me. Yeah, I think that that is um, that that that's what feels honest to me. Mm. Even though I, I don't know Mike personally, that's mm. what I think that that it when it comes down to it's like how, how can you go from coaching one to the other? You can do that because of money, right? Because that's your job and these and talent you, like, and talent and also this is what James Harden. It's like a, he's also a once in a lifetime player. Yeah, he's talent. a generational talent. He yes. dictates. He so dictates the way you're going to play. That's also an incredible opportunity. It just seems like that's the full spectrum. He's done it. You know, the only thing. Yeah. So it just he's really covered all the basketball bases yeah. uh, there. So that's just like kind of an interesting thing to me that I don't think other um, 
other coaches necessarily have covered that same yeah. gamut. So I wanted to circle back real quick to a question we asked earlier though about do players think aesthetically when they're deciding what they're going to do? And of course, I, I think they do. I mean, for a variety of reasons. And, and players value certain things aesthetically. Uh, Kyrie Irving's not my favorite basketball player, but he's one of the most popular players amongst other professional basketball players. And when you think about his game, it is very visual, mm-hmm. right? His crossovers, the degree to which he dances with the basketball, the the contrast between his size and what he's capable of doing um, at the rim, I think, is 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 quite inherently visually interesting um that dynamic of contrast and so players love him and does he does he dance more than maybe he should or take more difficult shots than maybe he ideally should because it's aesthetically pleasing sure i think he probably does i'm sure he thinks in those terms um interestingly james is doing many of the same things so why is it less aesthetically pleasing well part of it's just his physicality he's just a different player physically Mm -hmm. um and you know, if you believe discourse around the league, he's not a super popular player with te- with with opponents. Um, part of it is the foul hunting, right? Nobody wants to look like a fool because they reached in when they weren't supposed to, or they shouldn't have, and right. got a foul called on them. But part of it is, I think, that there's an element to his game that's just not that spectacular. It's efficient, it's effective, but it's not that spectacular. And the basketball, again, to circle back to a topic we touched on earlier, I think is a sport that has inherent spectacle to it. The slam dunk is one of the most spectacular things that athlete ever does that you see regularly um a slam which is dunk. not about sharing yeah which is not about sharing <laughs> slam dunk in traffic even more so dunking right. on somebody you think yeah. about all these things that are so talked about by the people who talk about basketball that guy got dunked on right you just got put on a poster yeah. um so those spectacular plays are certainly plays that are valued among the peer group in basketball so of course people think about how they look and they're such these are are performers in a stage play at the end of the day, yeah. right? These are performers for public consumption, so they're gonna, of course, they're gonna be concerned about how they look. Um, I do think that there are players that realize, I'll use Clay as an example, a clean jump shot is about the most beautiful thing in basketball. So that's his perspective. So I think that, that there are players that definitely think that way as well. Um, but in the end, it's about making buckets and scoring points. And yeah. and uh, and these aesthetic principles, though they might guide my viewership of it and they may dictate which team I'm tuning into on a given night, are really about viewing, I think, much more than they are about a player deciding what they're doing. Which which I guess begs the question, to what degree is this art if, if the player is thinking in one way and not thinking about the aesthetic outcome? Well, I, I guess I like to think that they... I think that it goes back to this idea of of strategic versus responsive. And okay. so sometimes they are just being responsive to the situation. And like I'm thinking about Michael Jordan's uh the the his iconic shot from like the first championship mm-hmm. where he's yeah, going the hand up switch. and he switches and goes to right. the other side and it's always shown in slow motion. You're always like, How did he do that in right. midair? You know? But there's still this idea that Yeah, he's gonna I, get the hit. he went up with his left because there because it's a left hand layup, but the yeah. guy was gonna block the shot, so he switched right. Yes, which is a pretty, which is a pretty average sort of. Right. I'm trying to go this way. You're there. I'm going to go that way instead. Right. So that feels he, that doesn't feel like he was trying to create art. Little did he know that that is art. Right. You know. So I think that um, sometimes the art comes accidentally, which is true of studio practices as well mm-hmm. um, for visual arts. And then sometimes it is like I, this skill, this perfect print, this perfect, um, you know. What I'm t- thinking about photography, mm-hmm. this perfect mastering the specific skill, Kyrie mm-hmm. Irving, James Harden, this way of dribbling that's so like, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I spent this many hours 
over this many years right. working towards that where right. this conscious versus unconscious which creativity is more valuable in a sense because it is it is a contribution to to have this incredible skill of being able to cross over and and sort of dance around your opponent and it also is the skill to be so trained and so aware that you don't have to, you don't necessarily make the choice consciously. You just react to the situation that you're in. Right. And I think that, I mean, the Michael Jordan play you point out is exactly both of those things in combination, right? He can't get to the rim without the practice skill that he's practiced for, you know, years and years and years yes. over and over and over again. The um, switching of the hand and the elegance of that that we now appreciate is a, re- is a reaction in the moment. It is not something that he planned. It's not something he said, I'm going to go up and I'm going to go up with my left. And then right at the last minute, I'm going to switch to my right and drop the ball in the bucket, it's a reaction to circumstance. Um, you know, you talked about sort of visual art practice. My One of my thoughts is, you know, if you if you play music, there's, we have this, I have used this expression, hey, that sounds good, play that again. Right? Mm-hmm. You're just noodling around and suddenly you hit on something and it's like, hey, that sounds good, play that again. Yeah. Let's work on that. Let's practice that. Let's refine that. So it's always a combination of both. It's always a combination of uh, the instinctive and the intuitive along with the practiced. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even if the end goal is to win, the practice itself is a kind of art, I would argue. And, and um especially when you think about the physical practice of being a professional athlete or a basketball player. There's so much poetry to me in the physical movement of a player that, yeah, it's, I mean, it's got to be art at some level, which bringing it back around is why I talk about it aesthetically, why I constantly talk about basketball aesthetically. Right. And it seems only fair to do that as far as I think both, both fine art and basketball or sports sell themselves short when they don't sort of when you can't use one lens to look at the other that's right um so i think that there is this uh sort of power in letting one inform Mm -hmm. what sort of is occurring with the other rather than keeping them separate um i mean and i think yeah I mean, the consumption's richer, right? Whether I guess I'm thinking now from the viewer's perspective, but your consumption of the game is richer if you can see it both as a bottom line win-loss outcome-driven experience and whatever investment you have in your team winning. Mm -hmm. But you can also appreciate the the actual form itself, the elegance of the form, its beauty, its its its. really just just all the aesthetic components about it that we've talked about i don't think there's they're not mutually exclusive lenses but the but it's a richer viewing experience i think i mentioned to you that um you can you can practice fandom like it's a practice of taste and and you don't just have to practice it as if that fandom is a practice of bottom line my team won my team lost right or i like this sport versus that sport because it's more exciting there's a there is an informed way you can view it that I think makes the viewing experience richer and it makes it that much more fun when your team wins. My team right. won and they were look good they look good doing it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you can also explain sort of why you liked why you thought it, they looked mm-hmm. good doing it. I think that is similar thing to when people go into an art gallery or to a museum and there's a show up mm-hmm. and it's like, I don't get this show. Right. When you're watching football and it's like, I don't get the rules. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. what the rules are. How can I understand this thing when I don't come into it with this base knowledge? I think that also there can be this, well, I think that those reactions come from there being a lack of trust in our own opinions, our right. own judgments. So it's like, oh, I don't like this painting. Maybe I don't, that's okay, Maybe but I, I don't just don't get like it. it. Yeah. Maybe, yes, where the reaction mostly is like, I'm a schmuck. I didn't read that book. I don't get it. I don't know what this word means. Whereas hmm. that 
it, it could also just be that, that that visual is not doing it for you, and right. that's so worthwhile to just trust that rather than having to find a reason. Um, I think it's good to be able to explain, but also I think it's okay to just say... I just yeah. Yeah, I like it better. Right. I like Ellsworth Kelly better than Jackson Pollock. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and to trust sort of your visual instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that... I think in, in sports it can be tricky because it's like these whistles are being blown and you're like, why is this happening? And if you don't have a baseline understanding of right. the rules or things like that, but you can still say, wow, that was a really amazing physical feat. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to be part of the special club to understand that. Right. You know, and I think both both sort of cultural phenomenons are a little bit exclusive sometimes with you kind of have to like prove your... Yeah, you're, worth you, you're bona fides, right? Yeah. I've got to get in the club, right? And and no, and, and this is one of the challenges of criticism generally, and I mean, it's a background I come from, is that it's the shared vocabulary, right? Are you are you excluding based on a specific vocabulary? I'm going to talk about sports in this way and, and demonstrate that I'm somehow more informed or more capable or a more um, intelligent viewer than you are? Or is it really just a way of sharing, hey, this is how I see the game? And, and I, you know, it works for me to see it that way. But you can see it as simply a bottom line, one loss outcome and get excited about whatever investment you have, whether it's your team because they come from your city or from your sense of community or um, you know a player that's on a certain mm-hmm. team that maybe you have that connection with or you've uh, had a parent or a loved one that was that was into that squad so you became into them. Those yeah. are absolutely equally legitimate. Um, all are equally legitimate sort of points of access, I guess. Right. Um, and, and for myself as well, I mean, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona and uh, went to college here, and I'm a U of A basketball fan. Now, a lot of what I value in basketball comes from what I saw as a U of A fan over the years, the type of style of play that the U of A put out on the floor during the Lou Olson years, where Steve Kerr came from, and a number of other players. Um, But it would be foolish of me to say that I would not be a U of A fan if they didn't play a certain style of basketball. I'm still a U of A fan years later, and Lou Dawson hasn't been coaching for 10 years. So, um, because I have that community investment and that sense of place and, you know, my alma mater where I went to school and so forth. So this is just one of many ways, I think, to, to access the game. But what I do think is important is that we don't, we think about these various culture forms not as leveled, right? Well, the fine arts are here and professional sports are here and popular culture is all these different levels and their legitimacy is determined by what level they rest on. It's much more that how we as individuals and humans gather meaning and enrich our lives and enrich the lives of the people around us by watching these sports. I like to think basketball has informed my sense of of egalitarianism in my work relationships and my relationships with my family, with my kids. Yeah. I use basketball as a metaphor to talk about life lessons with my children all the time. Like always make your foul shots because yeah. they're free. <laughs> always make your free throws. They're free. They're the easiest thing in the That's world to Mike make. Dan Don't leave them behind. Tony is saying as well. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. See, right. it comes back to bite me. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that when we view all cultural experiences, art, basketball, what have you, through that lens of how can this enrich my my life in my community and my relationships with people around me and my work life, um, they're all equally valid and equally resonant. Yes, and, and I jumping off of that, I just, I think of both the basketball, I mean, basketball is my favorite sport, so, but including other sports and also art, they're just offerings. They're mm-hmm. ways that people are offering themselves to the rest of the world, um, and some ways more public than others, but I, I think that what is troubling is that so often those offerings are, are put into sort of exclusive 
spaces that you either need to pay a lot of money to get into, museum, basketball, professional basketball game, whatever, or they're treated as spaces that you, you have to know a certain amount of information right. to, to enjoy. You have to have the vocabulary. You have to have the vocabulary. Right. You have to have the background information. It's all it, – so I think that I – I, I would like to think that all of these sort of expressions of humanity are just offered up as a way to enrich all of our lives. And then in the hopes that we as fans take what we see, you know, or we as viewers of the art take what we see and we decide to respond in some way mm-hmm. that, that is also making an offering. Maybe not to the same level that that, you know, the, the dunk of James Harden last night, but in some way that it's like we're, we're also making contributions. Mm-hmm. So. I wish, I feel like I wish that that's the way things could work more often is that the things, the people that inspired me or the, you know, the, that I would, that it was, it was built in that I was sort of like called to, to respond to them through mm-hmm. my own sort of creativity. Um, so hopefully that is just how my life will continue because I think for, for, and I think that's the, you know, the crux of this podcast with writing to dear Adam Silver in a way it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm reaching up because Adam Silver is so far above me on mm-hmm. the the, uh, the basketball food chain but in some way it's like saying i get to talk to adam silver like sure. i'm a person he's a person right. like this this podcast is about us even though he doesn't that he's not aware of it but it's just this idea of a thing that of, of creating some level of equality between these two mediums and also between the people that are involved mm-hmm. no matter what stage they're at right um so i think that that's what's and also i think that that has helped inform how i want to speak about players and what they do um I think sometimes on some of the podcasts I listen to and stuff like that, it can feel so judgmental towards right. the players. And I mean, those those critics and those journalists are totally, uh, they, they're allowed to say whatever they want, but I've just been thinking more and more of how to approach it from we're all in this together. Right. And how can, I, how can I critique this and how can I express my taste without sort of labeling something as bad versus good or right or wrong or, you know, so... Yeah, that's that's where I'm. I've landed. Well, and I think you know, even just in our discussion with players today, I mean, I think it's really important for me in my own practice of fandom, I guess, um, to be specific in my terms. I don't, you know, I don't enjoy watching James Harden play basketball. Well, why, Sean? You know, really, what is it about that? And can you can you put some definition on that? Sure. Now, that doesn't make my perspective correct just because I can put some definition on it. And the distinction between my aesthetic appreciation of James Harden and, frankly, my appreciation of him as an individual human being and an incredibly effective basketball player, there is a distance between those two appreciations. Yeah. Um, but I think my first obligation when when talking about any cultural product is to try and define my own terms and my own experience with it, right? And and not try to to not try to extend or judge beyond the the constraints of those definitions. And so, for me, again, watching talking about players is is largely talking about my own principles, values. Um, and mapping those things to some degree on on a text, right? Mm-hmm. And what they do on the floor is really a text that I'm consuming. It doesn't necessarily – it's not them. It's not their nature, their essence, the who they are that I'm talking about. It's the text that, they, that, they're, that they're generating. Yes. And um, – so we're saying to James Harden, it's not you, it's us. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. That's that's exactly. Right. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> we love you. It's not you're you. great. Yes. Keep keep dropping forty every night. You're Seriously. fine. I don't, and also, honestly, I'm not sure that James Harden is really worried about my judgment of his game when he's dropping forty every night. Yes, I like to pretend <laughs> that he is concerned with this podcast, but I'm not sure if we're quite there yet. But who, I mean, who knows? Maybe after this one. Uh, Although I, we'll do, get a I call. mean, I do think it's frustrating. 
I think it's got to be frustrating when he hears his game described as being ugly. And this is sure. not, I'm not the first person to use these terms. No. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just, it would be a very weird thing to be, to be a professional athlete and be so incredibly good at achieving the bottom line result of your profession and have people say, yeah, but I just don't care for it. Right. It, I don't, I don't, I just don't like it. <laughs> yeah, but it's like he, he's, he's, uh, yeah, he's doing things that's, I mean, he's doing it in a way that not everyone has done it before. I mean, he's leading the team mm-hmm. in a way and the team is defined by the way he plays and he's a contender for MVP, even though we could have a whole podcast about you know, most valuable player and what that means. Oh, and gosh, all these don't things. get me started. So, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So I think that um, there's just a lot, there's a lot there. So yes, I think bottom line, love you, James Harden. But yeah. as, you know, and I think, but also it, there's so much value in choosing which aesthetics you like. That's right. <laughs> and, and identifying and being able to say like, I, I like I don't want every piece of art, even though I'm I'm an artist and, and I appreciate so much art made by other people and I want people to, con- to continue to make art. I don't want it all in my house because sure. I don't like it all. Yeah. You know, it's not all great to look at. Um, so I think that um, being able to, it, it's empowering to be able to decide, oh, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I, with any sort of... Um, aesthetic or style or whatever it is to say like this isn't a good fit for me right and also to be open to hearing the contrary point of view i mean i i I do know people that are big james harden's fans and it's really interesting to talk to them about what they see as valuable not only his game from a bottom line perspective but what they see as valuable in his game aesthetically his ability to control and dominate a a situation for a lot of people is a a super valuable and attractive thing they like to see him excel in that way it gives them gratification to watch that um different from me but no less valid right great so we've made our amends (laughs) that's right we've made amends we've unpacked we've maybe offended (laughs) that we made amends um and i think like maybe this is something we can agree on without having to offend anyone is that Adam Silver, dear Adam Silver, maybe five more offensive fouls should be called per game and yes. 20 less points or 15 less points could be scored and that'd be okay with me. Yeah, that would be totally okay with me if we could just eliminate the foul, the, the, the foul hunting. Make it punitive to foul hunt. Call offensive fouls rather than just non-calls. And, and uh, then and can we also have a stat sheet stuffer of the year award rather than an MVP and an MVP award sure, is two yeah. separate <laughs> awards. <laughs> right. Yes, okay, that'd be great. I think that that's, Best stats that's the answer. versus MVP. Right, yes. Because I think that MVP must be the more emotional, the more like inspiring, you know, it's the, the, so yeah. So we'll have to come back for another podcast and we can unpack the concept of value. Right. What constitutes value (laughs) when we're talking about the most valuable player. (laughs) And one more thing about those foul, that foul hunting, the refs look like idiots when they have to call those plays. I'm like, do you want to set the refs up for this? Well, I I think, you know, I think that one of the reasons that, that, Many people object to foul hunting as a, in general, and and the people who practice it. I'm going to stop throwing poor James under the bus for sure, a minute sure, sure. here. Let's um, say Steph. Let's yeah, say Steph. Say Steph. Is that it's based on tricking the rules? It's based on oh, it's it's a loophole. It's a it's based on fooling the ref fooling the other player, like you bait the other player into doing something that normally would just be good defense, but I'm going to take advantage of that by doing something myself, and then I'm going to hope that the referee rewards me by not actually seeing what I really did and just what I was perceived to have done. So the whole thing is based on a ruse, a dodge, a hustle, something very disingenuous. Um, And so I think 
you know, we can, we talked before about the physical like disingenuousness of the move, and it's also just contextually and narratively disingenuous, and that's why it's it's ugh. right. It, it leaves us feeling yuck. icky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very icky. Um, good. Well, that's a good place to end on the word icky. <laughs> so thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate your time, and I hope that this is the first of many uh, sort of nuanced conversations we can have about our favorite shared sport. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here. <laughs>